Welcome to Back from the Abyss, a place for psychiatric stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. For some time, I've been wanting to do an episode where I sit down with a psychiatrist and talk about psychotherapy. Most psychiatry podcasts focus on psychopharmacology, and this is due in part to the unfortunate reality that in the U.S., lots of psychiatrists focus primarily on med checks and symptom management rather than integrated or holistic treatment. There's a huge shortage of psychiatrists. So in some respects, the med check model is out of necessity. If everyone were doing what I'm doing, the shortage would be even more drastic. But still, I believe that when psychiatrists put psychotherapy aside and start thinking of themselves as psychopharmacologists, something crucial and deeply meaningful is lost. For this episode, I reached out to Dr. David Pewter, a psychiatrist and the host of the Psychiatry and Psychotherapy podcast. And how could I not be drawn to a podcast that celebrates psychiatrists doing therapy? We had a good time recording this episode, though it was definitely way past my bedtime, so I hope I'm coherent in the next hour, and I hope you enjoy this exploration of psychotherapy. What I had um, proposed in uh, David's game was to do almost like a back and forth question thing. One of the things I love to do at dinner parties is, you know, sometimes you'll go and people have these question boxes and you pull out questions and how'd you meet your partner or what's the scariest thing you ever went through as a kid and sort of a conversation thing. And I thought it'd be fun for you and I, David, to sit down and just ask a bunch of questions and kind of play the question game back and forth, you know, with an emphasis on the work we do and our passions and what's been difficult, what's been meaningful, what we've learned, what we wish we knew. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be, that'd be really meaningful. So you came up with some good questions and yeah, you want to. Yeah. Let's jump right in. Let's jump right in. It's really hopeful and heartwarming to me that, that you celebrate therapy. It seems like more and more psychiatrists are not doing much psychotherapy but I'm curious what that looks like in your practice. And I'll tell you what that looks like in my practice. Yeah. So I agree. There's, you know, a lot of psychiatrists who don't really care about psychotherapy in terms of like practicing it themselves. Most of them, you know, care about referring their clients to a really good therapist, really good partial program. But, you know, I think it's just the way that insurance is right now and the way that monetarily you get rewarded in psychiatry. For me, when I started out, like I was taking basically half my salary uh, mm-hmm. working at an academic institution that would support me seeing psychotherapy patients in the afternoons, going to a, I went to a psychoanalytic program for two years. And um, I, I, you know, I taught psychotherapy with this 90 year old psychoanalyst, Dr. Tar, that I absolutely love. And so that was really the decision why I chose to be there. You know, for me, it was what I felt like I was good at and, you know, the medication management stuff, I can figure that out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Like within a minute or two, you know, you can decide which medication or what's the next move or what's the side effect that's going on. Like that sort of intellectual stuff is engaging, but for me, the psychotherapy is like unending curiosity. So it really is like you're doing therapy on every patient that you see if you're a psychiatrist is the way that I see it. 
So if you're listening to this and you're like, my, most of my practice is medication management, like you're still doing therapy. It's, it's good therapy and it, your patients will be blessed by the human interaction of someone who cares about them, who someone who has in the trenches with them, you know, or, um, you know, it may not have that much of an impact, right? If you're just kind of, you know, moving patients in and out of the office, it, it may, it may push them the wrong direction. You know, it may, mm -hmm. it may make people a little bit more skeptical of psychiatry over time. Mm -hmm. So yeah. It, is, what pretty, are, it yeah. is pretty striking that you think of that med check, you know, even a 15 minute, 20 minute med check could be a therapy visit. I think, you know, you, we both and our listeners can imagine sitting with someone for eight, 10, 12, 14 minutes who clearly deeply cares and wants to hear us and witness us. And also versus like sitting for an hour with someone who's giving us time, but not fully connecting. Cause I think there is something about the intention and you're right. Even in a, a med check short appointment, you, you can still have the intention to really be there and care and give them every minute. What are the unique facets of the relationship that are going to lead to the most thriving? Right. That's what I'm mm -hmm. really curious about. And how do we improve our ability to do that? You know, mm -hmm. I was, I was a rower in college and we always thought like, how do we, um, how do we improve our boat speed so that we can win the national championship? Mm -hmm. Right. We want to show up every day and we want to practice in a certain way that leads to this, that manifests this outcome, this future outcome. Right. And my coach would say, what you do in practice today will lead to that it will, will be a manifestation of what happens on the day of na the national championship. Mm -hmm. Like if you train today in such a way and bring your attention to every stroke, you know, if you focus on every stroke, focus on the feel of each stroke, be totally present with what you're doing, be present with what you're trying to improve, give it your full measure. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll show up on the national championship, you know, competition. I feel that way about, I feel that way about psychiatry and psychotherapy. Yeah. It's like if we can train in such a way to be in that moment, to, to be in that moment. Yeah. And to notice the important things to notice. Right. Mm -hmm. And to, to be a coach of ourself and also be coached. Mm -hmm. Right. We, we yeah. never, we, we never need to stop being coached. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. I love that idea of the moment thinking of, you know, concentrating on the stroke. I, um, when you were rowing, I did this amazing course by this analyst from boston i think it was called like moment to moment uh, uh, a look at psychotherapy and and her whole thing that we worked on for three days was in each moment of therapy there's only three things you can do you can leave the patient where they are you can turn up the anxiety or you can dial it down mm. so you can um sort of Put, you know, help them go deeper in, pull them away from whatever is causing the anxiety or fear, or, um, or you just leave it. I thought that was such an interest. I think about that a lot, moment to moment. That the the image I use is a it's like a propane burner underneath the patient, and I'm thinking. And th one of the moment to moment things I think is, how's the patient simmering? Do we need? Can, can he or she sit with this? Do we need to dial it down a little bit? Do we need to dial it up? with the anxiety, with the fear, with the connection, am I losing them? Am I you know, losing them because of 
lack of interest or just pushing them too hard. So yeah, what about you moment to moment? You know, again, thinking back, to, I love that stroke metaphor, but what's running through your mind as you're sitting with someone and you're really trying to can focus on each moment to be there with that person and to, again, be mindful of what's happening? I think the first thing is I notice um, the emotions on their face, their body language, the body language change, the the tonality of their voice, the change in the tonality. And, you know, I, um, I sort of stumbled upon micro expressions about 10 years back or so and started studying it. So it's, it's something that's kind of unique and something I feel like I'm trying to add to the psychotherapy community to, to learn how to notice these like one tenth of a second, one thirtieth of a second mm. emotions that flash on the face. Mm-hmm. It's, You're like uh, an interrogator, like an FBI. Well, <laughs> You're studying. I, I know I, what you mean. Okay. It, it, face, interestingly, so there's this guy, Paul Ekman, who has this famous TV show where he is an interrogator, right? He's like, it's called Lie to Me. It's mm-hmm. fun. It's it's like, um, I've, I've seen him talk. And he is kind of like, you know, that that type of person who's, you know, probably really enjoys the, the party trick of like being able to realize, recognize someone's emotion and, you know, but okay. So what do you do once you, once you see it, right? Then it's like, okay, does the person know that they had this emotion? Mm-hmm. Sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Uh, did the, uh, the person try to defend against the feeling or the, the thought of having this emotion? Maybe they tried to, you know, uh, come up with some psychological defense to protect themselves from the experience of it. Did the person feel a sense of, of shame, mm-hmm. a sense of self-criticalness? Uh, so did the person express that emotion towards me in something I said, right? So can I have enough ego strength to think that I might have said something wrong and backtrack, you know, that's good. I do that. Mm-hmm. So so I think that the moment to moment thing is like, sure, the emotion, but then empathy is much deeper. So I think about empathy as like, there's the moment to moment recognition of what's going on in the other person is the words. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of, of their, of their book, right. If they had a book and then, you know, we ha- we see sentences stream together with those moment to moment emotions and we see, um, you know, chapters, right. As we get to know them deeper, know, know their story. And then, you know, as we learn about the prior chapters, the empathy deepens because it's not just seeing that moment of emotion in the midst of that um, sentence. It's seeing it in the midst of the book. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if I can communicate to them back that I'm hearing them, that that I'm hearing them accurately, and if they feel heard, if they feel understood, and if they can feel in the midst of feeling heard and understood, if they can feel less lonely in the midst of some of the, you know, traumas, as they're talking about traumas, or just lonely, distressful stories, that's really sufficient. Hmm. That's really mm-hmm. sufficient. The, the work then takes care of itself, right? And what comes up is what needs to come up.
one of your questions was like, what was an early therapy event from residency that sort of changed the way that I do mm-hmm. my psychotherapy practice? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this patient who had, um, who had lost his house. And he had told me this story about four times. And then, you know, outside of the room, I was thinking about it one day and I was thinking like, why does he keep bringing up this story? Like Mm. what? And in my mind, I would, my actual thought process is why is this such a big deal? He still has his family. He still has his job. You know, there's like tough things happen, but like, so in my mind, I had this inability to empathize with how distressing it was for him to lose his house. Mm. So he had to keep telling you. So he had, so he kept telling me, why Mm. do you think he kept telling me? Because he didn't feel heard. He didn't feel understood. And because he felt alone in the midst of that traumatic event, it was for him, it was like, and, and then I thought deeper into like, why would losing a house be so hard for this guy? And why is it hard for me to recognize how hard it is for him? He worked in the housing industry. All Mm. he thought about all day long were other people's houses. Oh, and then he loses his. Yep. Yeah. And then also he moved around a lot of his childhood from house to house and houses were not safe places. And so here he had created a safe place for his grandkids and he had lost it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he, and he, so the next time he brought it up, I said that I said, Hey, I've been thinking about you. I've been thinking about why this was so distressing. And I said all those things. And he just sat there quietly and you could feel like you could feel the connection. You could feel here's a moment where he feels understood. He, he never brought it up again. Mm. It's so good. He kept coming back. People come back if they, so yeah, if when I have residents and they keep coming back to the same story, I'm like, what is it about the story that you haven't Mm -hmm. heard yet? Yeah. What is it about the story you don't understand? Mm-hmm. There's another, there's another facet of the trauma, you know? So like, for example, rape traumas, horrible, horrible events that, you know, it's painful to listen. It's painful to hear it, but it's like, sometimes the rape trauma doesn't end at the end of the rape. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like now they tell their family and their, how their family responds is now part of the trauma because the part, the family could not hold and validate them and empathize with them. And so they feel alone. Yeah. When when I wrote that question, you know, some experiences from our residency training that really affected us, two two came to mind for me. One was a was a, me- a medical student I was seeing who was just shockingly handsome. And he um he had body dysmorphic disorder and thought his head was grossly misshapen and gigantic like a pumpkin and he would come in and cry and tell me that wherever he went people would stare at him men and women and i said i said because you're like the most gorgeous man on the planet anybody's gonna stare at you and he said no my head's huge and then i had this brilliant idea i thought well i have a huge head like when i used to play football they had to special order helmets for me so i thought i'm gonna bring in a uh, a tape measure and i'm sure my head's bigger and i'm just gonna fix him in one session so i came in i said hey we're gonna do something really cool i measured my head and then we measured his head and mine was bigger. And I said, see, your head's not that big. And he started sobbing. He said, your head's bigger. It's true. And look how well you deal with it. This is just more 
evidence just how grossly broken I am. And that was, I think that moment, it really started to hit me that each of our perspectives is so subjective. Because I think part of the early therapist me thought, you know, part of what I need to do in therapy is just get people to see it the way I do. Because clearly, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm the healthy one, they're the unhealthy one. I'll just pull out this tape measure and say, hey, your head's fine. And he actually, shortly after that, I hope not because of that, my tape measure fiasco, he had an almost fatal suicide attempt. And I remember talking with my supervisor and she said, yeah, everyone's story, everyone's reality is theirs alone. Hmm. And yeah. And so that, that was the first one. That was a really powerful. Um, second one was in my residency program, we had three years. Wait, 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 let's, oh, yeah. let's, let's pause. Let's back pause. up on that. Yeah. I, want, I want to ask you a question. Oh yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. With all the knowledge that you know now, mm -hmm. what would, what would you have said to him? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So now I know the body dysmorphic disorder for most people is, is truly delusional in that there is no uh, evidencing people out of it. It's really, it's a long-term process of trying to get people to act as if to work sort of a dialectic. Well, maybe my head is grossly misshapen like a huge pumpkin but I'm going to act in this way, but you, but trying to go head on into that belief and sort of argue or evidence them out of it. No, I mean, I, I didn't realize how delusional body dysmorphic disorder could be. And I think, I think my, my uh, tape measure thing probably made him feel way less heard and understood as you were just describing, you know, mm -hmm. with that story with losing the house, I thought, Oh, this is perfect. And I think he probably felt more, unheard and, and more ashamed that if in fact I did have a bigger head that I was clearly doing well in the world and he wasn't more, more evidence of his brokenness. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was looking for a fix, you know, I think I, a real, yeah, I, I was looking, I'm going to, I'm going to fix him and now realize uh, if I could have just witnessed it and just been with it and just mm -hmm. rode out long-term and, you know, I think what he needed was a witness and, so I'm going to really hear that and I'll try to convince him out of it with a tape measure. Yeah. It's, it's intuitive to think that you would have been able to take that tape measure and then prove to him once and for all. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's this, and I think that's, that's the response that he probably got throughout his life whenever he was vulnerable. You know, I would also thank him. It's, it's meaningful that he would be able to share that distress with you. I wonder too, I think, I don't know if you experienced this as, as an early resident, you know, in med school, you're thinking, you know, diagnosis, treatment, move people through, I think psychiatry training, but specifically the, the longer term therapy, the psychodynamic stuff was about, you know, hurry up and just relax, like hurry up and just breathe, just like we're in this for a longer term, deep dive perspective story finding making and uh i was just so excited to get in there and start making stuff happen and oh, yeah. by trying to make stuff happen yeah i was knocking the dishes off the table making a mess <laughs> Thank you.
an opposite version of that. This is actually the same year, the end of my first year with one of my psychodynamic patients. She she felt so deeply indebted to me. And she said at the end of the first year, I don't know how I could ever repay you. There's nothing I could ever do for you. But I think if I could give you a blowjob, like that would do it because I'm really good at that. And I just quickly changed the topic. I said, well, that's not going to happen. And I remember going to meet my supervisor. We would meet every Thursday at lunch at his East Side Providence office. And I told him this story and he laughed. He said, what did you say? I said, well, I changed the topic. He said, oh, he said, oh, this is great. He said, oh no, this is months of good material. He said, you need to steer into that. He said, you steered away. Everyone's just, he's like, you got to steer directly into that. Okay. Okay. You're, you're going to have to break down what that means for people who don't have the training. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what he meant was we needed to spend, I needed to ask all about it and understand it and hear it and really validate it. You know, as you just said about the losing the home story, I, she meant that. I think she really thought this is an incredible gift and I'm offering you the most powerful thing I feel like I can offer you. And I just brushed it off. I didn't hear her. I discounted her. But steering in is, he said, you need to go back the first session and you need to explore that as long as you need to, if it takes you the whole next year of residency. And he said, and this is great. He said, this is going to be powerful stuff's going to come up, but you need to go right into this the sexual transference, the feeling, you know, or this initial thing where she shared this and that you mm-hmm. changed the topic and, and basically ran from it because I ran from it. And we did. My memory was we were in and out of that topic for months. And then mm-hmm. at the end, interesting, at the end of the second year, she gave me a gift certificate to the most expensive restaurant in Providence. Okay. Like hundreds of dollars. And it was, so it was kind of the same thing, but this time I knew to steer right in. I said, I can't accept this, <laughs> but let's talk about it. This is such a beautiful, kind, amazing gift. And mm-hmm. again, when I told my supervisor, he said, oh yeah, this is two months material here. Oh. This, is, this is really good stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So just, just if you're listening to this, you're like, what are we talking about here? So an attachment over a year has in this in this unique relationship of a, of a therapy relationship, right? And so this is the way that I'm kind of understanding this. So this person feels this debt of gratitude, which, you know, a lot of people, after you listen to them, after you help them through traumatic memories, this is what they feel towards you. They feel like a debt of gratitude. They feel very positive towards you. And by the way, this positive feeling towards you is what helps you get through some heavier material because the positive experience of coming to this place, we're talking about this. I don't feel alone in a lot of these things anymore. Like I used to incredible, incredibly meaningful to help someone continue to do the work of psychotherapy. Right? So why does she move into uh, like, okay, this is the way that I can pay you back. Right. It's sexually how has this person uh what what like worth self-worth has this person had communicated to them throughout their life in different relationships maybe if they're you know they were early sexualized into you know one of their attachment figures maybe they felt like this is the way i gain connection right this is the way i i don't have anything meaningful about me but i can give this right and so What's so powerful about working through this type of 
material is now this person is in a relationship where the person cares about them, where the person finds them meaningful without them giving sexual gratification to the other person. So they're able to break through the potential, the potential of having a relationship that doesn't abuse them so that they can get their psychological needs met and they can move on. And that now they can, it's, it, they can have new relationships with people that are based out of their sense of worth as a person. Right. There's the immediate offering of which I think she considered a great gift, but right. She had been for years, she had felt that her real only value to men was a sexual object. And she was desperately wanting to feel loved and cared about by me, but, and was feeling that, but had no idea how to, to give back. And I would tell her, you, you're giving so much back to me just by sitting with me. I mean, we, we sat together for three years for an hour every week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember when I started that, I don't know if you had that experience, but when I started the, the long-term therapy thing in residency, I thought, what are we going to talk about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, most people were on meds and oftentimes people had a pretty serious psych diagnosis, but yeah. So, okay. You know, let's refill your lithium. Let's check your thyroid level. Okay. 45 seconds expired. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now we got, now we got 59 <laughs> minutes and 15 seconds. Um, but that yeah. was the best. Yeah, I mean, I went to residency thinking that therapy was going to be the most interesting part of it. And it turned out to be because underneath people's presenting symptoms and pain is just this, these endless layers of mystery. And how could we not love that? You know, when I hear psychiatrists calling themselves psychopharmacologists, I think, really? I mean, the gastroenterologists aren't calling themselves, you know, gastroenterological pharmacologists or cardiac pharmacologists. I mean, I think when we when we relinquish psychiatrist for psychopharmacologist, we give up such a fascinating, valuable, and real part of the interaction that's happening, even if we're just quote unquote prescribing meds, as you pointed out a few minutes ago. We can miss these moments over and over and over again if we're mm-hmm. not, if if yeah. our if our brain isn't tuned in. And so I'm hoping through this podcast, right, that people kind of will have this reawoken inside of them, right? And we mm-hmm. we as providers, you know, we need to be we need to be primed, you know, to go into our day to look for these moments. Yeah. I think it's so interesting, David, that coming back to this moment to moment thing and the row, I love the rowing image. It sounds like you and I concentrate potentially on very different things as we're rowing, but it doesn't necessarily matter because we're deeply focused. It's almost like, you know, you with my micro expressions and watching so feeling and watching for emotions. It's like you're saying, oh, when I row, I, I watch so closely how the oar enters the water and I follow that so closely. And it's almost like I'm saying with the way I, I really sort of feel the person's sort of anxiety, fear level. It just, it's, it's very much to feel. It's almost like I'm saying, oh, when I row, 
I feel the way the boat moves and I'm, I'm really trying to be with that. And it's like, neither one is necessarily right or wrong. It's just, you and I are focused on very different parts of the process, but, but we're super focused. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think you're focused on, you're focused on um, at times modulating the intensity of their affect, right? Mm-hmm. Decrease- right so maybe, yes, right. So maybe, yeah, we're getting maybe the same final common pathway, just different. I, th- I think, I think you're probably very intuitive. Yeah. You're strong. You may be a little bit even more of a, a feeler than I am. So you're, you know, feeling into, well, and I'll also say this, like feeling into someone else's experience was very adaptive for me to do growing up. Mm. Right. Mm. And so, but I don't think I had words for it. So I think learning the emotions, learning how to see the emotions, it kind of gave me a way to tune my, uh, my rowing boat of sorts, you know, to like kind of have some object, some objectiveness to measure against my internal experience of them. When they're talking about things that maybe are a little bit more distant from the elephant in the room, you notice that Mm. you, you notice the inner, there's a little bit of a disconnect and you, so your response is to try to figure out what is that thing that they really want to talk about, but maybe they feel uncomfortable talking about it. Mm-hmm. Like, like for example, let's say a person is dissociating. Do you recognize that they're dissociating? You know, like if they kind of curl in, they go numb. I think for years I missed it, but I'm much better at identifying it now. Okay. And yeah. so what, what do you do if you feel someone is dissociating in front of you? Mm-hmm. What, what I would do now is, I might say something like, I feel like maybe I'm losing you or you're pulling farther away. I'm wondering if we could just shift for a second and tell me what's happening in your body. Mm-hmm. Can you, uh, I used to never really ask about somatic stuff or body. I was just, yeah. and, and so oftentimes I'll do that. Like, what are you feeling? Can, what are you feeling in your legs? Are you, are you feeling any, anything in okay. your chest? I, try I, to fr- I, I don't feel much at all. Actually, I feel like I'm like kind of floating. Mm. I'm floating away. Yeah. And so I guess what I would do now is I would say something like, David, can you go into that floaty feeling? So actually, you know, it might be helpful to close your eyes or not, but, but instead of feeling uncomfortable with it or scared by it or repulsed by it, go into it. Actually let yourself become as floaty as you possibly can be. Okay. So do you know why that probably works? Um, I'm no, but I would love to know. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure I know either, but I would no. say there's a, there's an aspect of paradoxical intent there. Mm-hmm. It's like the man with premature ejaculation mm. and you give him the homework of trying to ejaculate 10 seconds faster than his normal mm-hmm. 30 seconds, you know? And by doing that, it's like the paradoxical intent. He's not able to do it and it just keeps going, right? And I've seen that a couple of times where it doesn't always work, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like there's that aspect of it's you're, you're normalizing this, this response, the defense, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say you're normalizing the defense. The defense is not seen as um, bad, mm-hmm. right? You're not shaming the defense, the only the way to shove someone into a further defense is to shame the is to shame them in the midst of having that like mm-hmm. um 
you know, which is probably what a lot of our parents did to us. <laughs> yeah. Or I think what early therapists are, or I'll at least speak for myself. I'm looking back and I've spoken about this on my podcast that some of my early patients, particularly in residency who would dissociate, I didn't know what it was. I read it as sort of shutdown, oppositionality, stubbornness, just not playing ball. And I would get frustrated and sometimes I would act out with counter-transferred sadism. And I just didn't know. And, you know, it's like, it's like those posters where you don't see the Starship, Starship Enterprise until you just look at it just right. And now uh, in the last just few years, I realized, oh my gosh, I miss so much dissociation. I totally missed it. Mm-hmm. I, I had all sorts of stories in my head for what was happening. Yeah. But I couldn't, I couldn't feel, I could, yeah, I, yep. I just missed it. So I feel like I need to make a grand apology to all well, my early people. I, th- <laughs> I, I missed I, that. I think that your response was, was, um, you know, probably adaptive for yourself, but maybe maladaptive in the moment type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, of course, like if we want to get out of dissociation, one way is to, to get angry. And that works for some of our patients as well. If we can get them a little angry, they get out. If their anger is at us, hey, that's like, that's still going to probably get them out of the dissociation. The other thing that I found from people who are dissociating, it's like empathy really is grounding, verbal empathy. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, a lot of my patients, when I talk to them about like, what's really helpful for you when you're in this state, they're like um, looking at you and knowing that you're understanding to some degree what I'm going through. How do you sort of recharge? How do how have you gotten through some of those hard things? And has the pot has the podcast really allowed you to do that? Yeah, it it has helped me for sure. I mean, the episode one of the first season was a woman who almost died by suicide attempt. Uh, I didn't hospitalize her when her husband basically begged me to. I was like, oh, she's going to be fine. She almost died. I was deep in a really horrible part of my life during that, and. Yeah, and, ha- and sitting down with her, even that very first episode, and going back over what happened and how much better mm. she's doing, and just our, tw- I guess I've known her for 13 years now. Even just that first episode, we cried at the end of it. I mean, I, yeah. And I've had other episodes like that that just remind me that, yeah, good things happen. And I guess one of the biggest lessons that I try to remind myself after having a bunch of painful things happen, including eight suicides and two murders and other stuff is that the people I've thought were going to kill themselves. None of them have the people who killed themselves. I didn't see it coming. And so I try to remind myself that, you know what? I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, Again, coming back to this moment, like I can try to be here for people today and we just don't know how this is going to all turn out. I mean, it seems like that's one of the lessons of 2020. Like if we, if we thought anything was certain. Um, and so actually moving towards uncertainty has helped me so much. Cause I think earlier in my career, I was thinking in a diluted way that if I worked hard enough, if I was a good enough doc, I could save people. And now I realize 
Yeah. Um, I, all I can do is just try to just try to be here for people and things are going to, the chips are going to fall as they will. And that actually, that just that acceptance, it's, it's kind of like a serenity prayer sort of thing, just to internalize that, that. Yeah. But I think it's allowed you to keep going in, in this, in the midst of, you know, this is a tough field. you say is like with the vip client what are you seeing i would say for me um the most challenging vip patients have been other physicians and let me just tell one quick story shortly after i moved to fort collins i started seeing a very prominent physician in northern colorado that was yeah um and so i was thinking wow he's coming to see me he's kind of a big deal and uh Shortly after starting to see him, he was really suicidal at one session. And I talked about hospitalizing him. He said, you know, you can't make me go to the psych hospital. I know everyone there. I, I mean, everyone knows this guy. Yep. He said, that, that would be so. And so he, and I said, well, we could send you to Denver, da, da, da. And so then I just basically by the end said, well, why don't you just go home and we can check in tomorrow? Well, that night I found out later he got a gun. He was driving around town. Um, luck, thankfully, he didn't shoot himself up as I went back over that and when I was doing some supervision, then, you know, my supervisor, she, she said, you would have hospitalized anyone except for him. I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, but he was a doc. He promised me that he would do anything. And I found that with other doc, my, my physician, I like working with physicians, but it is challenging because, Oh, you know, they know just enough to sort of get in my head. And, <laughs> I and I identify with them and they identify with me and I think almost too much. So yeah, some of the most most powerful relationships I've had working with patients have been docs, but also some of the most scary and I felt like a couple of different docs I work with maybe took a couple of years off my life from just the stress of it. But I but I think that coming back to your thought, like when you do when you do have these VIP clients and there's something really going wrong then yeah. And, and if you compare them to yourself, right. Mm-hmm. And you think like this person's kind of like me, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where we get kind of like activated maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more like, okay, this person is more like me than most clients. And so therefore now I'm, it's like the empathy goes into, it goes out of empathy and into a immersion of sorts, you mm-hmm. know, we're no longer with one foot in our own life and one foot in their life. We're with both feet in their life, right? Mm-hmm. Which for some clients, it's very, that's what they want. They want someone who has primary maternal preoccupation for their life. And so, you know, the, the more sophisticated they are, and if that is truly their unconscious psychic desire, they'll find a way to find someone that will give them that, right? Ah, uh, you know, I think you, you, I do what I can. And then I, I, I leave it all like, like, like kind of like a rower. I leave it all in the water. Yeah. You know, 
No, I'm envious. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm saying that with like, I can tell you that there are some clients like that, like just eat me up, eat me up. Mm -hmm. And then I get supervision for it mm -hmm. or I get therapy for it. You know, yeah. I, I see someone, I, t I process it. And sometimes I process it with like six or eight people, mm -hmm. you know, so I have some good guy friends, I'll call them, I'll, you know, and it's like my brain, my brain will try to change my environment until it gets back to more of an equilibrium. Mm -hmm. so yeah i that makes a lot of sense it's almost like people say uh if you're having trouble sleeping write down your worries like put them somewhere and then you go to sleep like you're able to sort of take the people that are really worrying you and okay, i'm going to take this supervision or colleagues or that's going to be the way process it and then yeah yeah that's a cool trick well, I don't know if it's a trick. I think no, it's, I don't um, think it's a trick. No, I, I think it's a good practice. Uh, I do. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I will say that I think that my being very athletic has helped me like being in sports um, and continuing to be like pretty competitive in what I do. I think it does release a lot of stress for me. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And so yeah, kind I'm, of having that balance. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would lose my mind if I quit running and biking. Like that's okay. <laughs> that's my sanity. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But do, do you ever feel guilty taking time off? Uh, to do one of those, or, or time off from work? Time off from work. Yeah, um, I used to much more. Yeah, much more. But now uh, my kids are gradually. Well, they did leave the nest, but with COVID, they're back in the nest. Uh, I'm just realizing more and more like time is short. You know, my mm -hmm. kids, I think you have little kids. My kids are on the cusp of adulthood and, and yeah, just, so no, I'm, I realize I need to run and be with friends and play guitar and, you know, call you late at night and do this recording. <laughs> this, this kind of stuff in, nourishes me. I'm it's life-giving. Yeah. It's life-giving for me too. And so it's like, you know, some people wonder like, how do I do all the things that I do? It's like, well, because if I, it, it balances me, you know, like, mm talking about talking about these things um it gives me deep sense of meaning and purpose i think someone's going to listen to this who's young in their profession and they're going to feel a little bit less overwhelmed a little bit less stressed a little bit less burned out and that is incredibly meaningful mm -hmm. if just if just a couple people right and it'll probably be more like more than a couple people right i'm hoping but that creates meaning as well right? Because we cannot fight the mental illness battle by ourselves, And maybe that's, maybe that's what helps me. I was thinking about one of the negative reviews I got. And it was like, Dr. Pewter talks too, too much about things that are very fringe, like psychotherapy, exercise, diet. And I'm like, what? I'm like reading this and I'm like, fringe. I'm like, uh, the fact that I didn't think that these were fringe and you think that they're fringe, Maybe that's why you should listen to this podcast for, buddy. <laughs> but, you know, he was looking like some of these people are just like just pure psychopharm. That's all I want to learn. That's mm -hmm. all I need to learn. Or it, like a, a ton of like nurse practitioners I know listen to my podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's I'm glad that they're learning. Like, it's not just all about meds. It The relationship really matters. Exercise, diet, all that yeah. stuff plays a role, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I often think of our work as gardening and, and the meds are like fertilizer. I mean, fertilizers are just often super helpful, especially for damaged soil. But gosh, if you're just doing fertilizer management, 
um, and not getting out there and working the garden and figuring out what's a plant and and looking at the conditions. I mean, that's what's so rich about what we're doing. And yep, it's and, and hopefully seeing the big picture, mm-hmm. right? So it's like seeing the the big picture because we've 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 been at so many different places in patients' lives. You know, as a psychiatrist, you uniquely spend two years in a psychiatric hospital in an ER setting. The first two years of your practice are very heavy in that. Like if you're a therapist listening to this, you probably have not seen that severe type of person, unless you, you know, spend some time in a psych hospital during your internship or whatnot. But it's like, it's a very unique experience as a psychiatrist to spend that much time with the very, very ill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder if that's a little bit of the, basis of kind of the anti-psychiatry movement and just that there's i think i had no idea going into psychiatry that there would be like whole podcasts and just like thinkers and books sort of uh going after what we do but i i wonder if part of that is as as you just said um a lot of people just uh have not experienced what regularly walks in the door okay here here is if you are anti-psychiatry open up a shingle, but don't open up a shingle in like the middle of New York where people can pay you a thousand dollars a visit. Like don't open up a shingle there, open up a shingle in the inner city and advertise that I see people with schizophrenia and psychosis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like good luck. That's, that's what I think about when I think about those anti-psychiatry people, like the people who are anti-medications who are promoting, you know, whatever the, whatever the newest fatty cure is often they're looking for that type of client, you know, placebo works really well. If you look at drug studies for those kind of clients, the placebo response is like 50%, you know, so just, just realize that like, if you go, if you, if, if you crank up the depression and the more severe ranges, the placebo response is, is not as good. You know, so that's one of my critiques on the, on the sort of anti-psychiatry movement. The other critique is actually a critique of psychiatry. And I see what some of the providers in my community are doing and I'm critical of them as well. You know, they're doing like the first, there's one provider in particular who starts everyone on benzos, who starts everyone on antipsychotics and mood stabilizers. Everyone is bipolar. Everyone is the first question he comes that comes out of his mouth on subsequent visits is what do you need a refill of? And the, the patients are languishing, you know? And so unfortunately, because he only spends, you know, he sees like 10 an hour or 20 an hour. It's like ridiculous. Um, It's like, because he's seen so many, so many patients are experiencing that sort of, not so good experience, you know? Yeah. What was going through, you know, I think every community has at least one or two, if not more psychiatrists like this, who are just pouring pills on the symptoms and just, and I just, I don't get it. I don't. And uh, being put on crazy amounts of benzos and stimulants and seven or eight meds by one or two visits. And I just think, okay, theoretically we all had similar training and theoretically we're all wanting to help people thrive. 
in what world do you start people on two or three milligrams of clonopin? You know, in, in what world do people get up to 80 milligrams of Adderall by the second or third visit? I mean, yeah, I, right. I, I agree. I think there's some bad actors out there, but I wonder why, what are they thinking? There are probably well-intentioned people. It's not like they have a moral failing, but they are convinced by clients to do whatever the client wants. And so they're probably more of the high trait agreeableness type of person who like, if the client says, Hey, benzos are the only thing that's worked, you know, they may not lean into like, Hey, but this person only tried an antidepressant for one week. They've never done mm -hmm. therapy. They've never done partial. They have borderline personality disorder and benzos don't really help people with borderline personality disorder. It may actually worsen long-term outcomes. Mm -hmm. So it's like, are they really looking at the big picture? Are they really thinking through all the scenarios where this could go bad that's interesting you know. to think of agreeableness as as potentially leading to bad doctoring i hadn't thought of that necessarily in that context but that makes a lot of sense that right the doc could be thinking well i want to i want the patient to be happy and to feel like this visit was worthwhile and he or she wants you know two milligrams of xanax at night and 60 adderall and and she won't leave happy if she doesn't get that I think that everyone else, everyone has like an individual story. So I hate to make generalizations about like, oh, this person's doing this nefariously. I would say most people that, you know, that just some clients like wear them down mm -hmm. and then it's kind of like, um, okay, this person has worn me down and, and, and I don't know what to do next because they're still not getting better. Yeah. That's a good, good, good description being worn down. Right. You can just imagine if it's later in the day or it's the person's repeated visit and, you know, and you're thinking, okay, this could work short term, the benzos or stimulants or something, and it's not a good long-term option. Or I'll just throw more meds at this, even though I know that's not going to fix it, but then at least the person will go away for a while, just wearing down. Because um, it's hard. To, it's hard to say no. I think it's oftentimes people more and more come in with an idea of what they think they might need. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're, um, you know, like I said, if you're a little bit higher trade agreeableness, if you're higher, you know, affective empathy, which I think you are higher in. And I think, I think for it's, it's like the, the, the boundaries then become something that maybe, you know, you, you learn over time. Right. And, uh, Hopefully you learn how to have a voice like and how to communicate with people what you're what you will and won't do. And I had one patient just just this year who was adamant and wouldn't try other medications that I felt like were a better fit for her and her age. She was older. And so finally I said, you know, and and she would come in and she would complain about the copay, you know, mm. and, and everything. And so I said, you know what? I think at this point we've kind of reached an impasse. Like every time you bring this up, every time we have this discussion, and um, I think you're entitled to search for a provider that, you know, will meet your needs. Unfortunately, we don't practice that here. She's like, well, can you refer me to someone in your group? I'm like, none of the other psychiatrists in my group practice that way. Mm. So I think you need to go to this other group that honestly, I think they'll give you probably what you want. Mm. I said, you know what? And I'm not even going to charge you a copay for today. So I walked her out. I gave her a refund. 
you know, she was upset. Of course I tried to like lean into the upsetness and be like, Hey, I think your goal of, of overcoming this is a good goal. I would like to help you in that goal. You would like to be helped in a particular way that I don't feel comfortable helping you in. And so I feel like you're entitled to find the, the solution that fits your need the best, right? The way that you would like to, the goal to be met. And you know what, if, if, if you want, you're more than welcome to come back here. Well, she came back about two months later. She's like, oh, I went over there and they treated me like much worse than you treated me. <laughs> Notice the wording on that is like, you treated me bad, but they treated me much, much worse. Yeah. And, uh, oh man. So, you know, it's like six months later and I think we found something that works a little bit better and life is a little bit, life is not quite as grim, you know? Mm-hmm. I've had so many people say, oh, I'm so worried you're going to fire me or not see me again. Or there's a lot of, a lot of rejection fear. But yeah, yeah. I th- and I think that that, that happens more, mm-hmm. right? And that, I think that happens from uh, attachment. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to feel close with you, Craig. And all of a sudden, Craig, I'm not sure you're going to want to be my psychiatrist anymore. I feel like now that you really know me, you must want to also reject me as everyone else has rejected me. And you're like, you know, the best response to that, I think is like, you know, that would be very scary to feel that. And I, you know, to lean into that empathy of like, it must be very scary to think that I, I, you know, I've had patients where like, I didn't realize how much they thought I was going to fire them until you like check in. And then you just start checking in every, and it's like, that's what you're going to check in with at the beginning of the session. Well, this week, did you feel like I was going to like fire you or abandon you? Yeah, pretty much all week long. Mm. And so with those patients, I'll usually end the session at, Hey, just want to let you know that like most weeks, I will probably only have positive feelings towards you this week. Mm. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) That's good. And, and you may have the thought that I'm going to fire you, but I just want to let you know, we can talk about it next time at the beginning of the session, but I'm, I'm not going to have that thought this week. 